when I was a kid in elementary school, like a lot of boys, I went through phases. Um, one of my phases, I don't know if you remember, if you were around back then, is I think Apple Records came out with the Beatles anthology. So I got really into the Beatles in elementary school. I think I was the only kid that had an Abbey Road poster in the 90s. Um, <laughs> But another thing was Indiana Jones. My family will laugh and tell you I really loved Indiana Jones. I had one VHS my mother had bought me, and then I had another one um, where I'd recorded it off TV. So I think I was an adult in the Army before I ever figured out how like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something started, because my video started like seven minutes in, and even then you had hit tracking a whole lot. <laughs> but it was during that time period, I think it was around fourth grade, um, that I also, in thinking about archaeology and the ancient Egyptians and mummies and stuff like that, um, I got really into that and wanting to learn and know more about that culture, so much so that in fourth grade I had to give a report with my buddy Mike, and we did it on ancient Egypt. And we, we had this uh, box, I don't remember what kind of appliance it went to, it wasn't a refrigerator because it wasn't big enough, but uh, after school, I would ride my bike over to his house, and we spray-painted it gold um, for this project, and we put Mike in it because he was the shortest one. Um, even so, it wasn't big enough because I still remember his toilet paper-wrapped knees sticking up out of the coffin that we had made. Um, but just thinking about King Tut and all this kind of stuff. Well, in February 16, 1923, Howard Carter, an archaeologist, entered the tomb of King Tut. Now, I don't remember everything specifically. There were several rooms, but when they finally got back to the room that King Tut was actually in, um, and his coffin, there were several layers. They were nested together, um, and they pulled out the sarcophagus that you and I probably know. Um, you know, it's really bright gold, cleaned up with the blue horizontal stripes and the multicolored necklace. And that's what we think of lots of times when we think of King Tut. But the thing about it is, is when they opened that, whatever lair it was, and got to Tut himself, what did they find? But a shriveled up, brown, kind of blackish body with his teeth showing. It was just a, a decaying body. Well, if you've read the um, bulletin today, you know we're talking about hypocrisy. And that is a good picture of a hypocrite. On the outside, it may be gold and ornate, but on the inside, it's a shriveled up person. Now, when we talk about a hypocrite, we're not talking about a person who is fallible. Many of us, if you've been a Christian for very long at all, and have taken a stand for the gospel, you've probably been called a hypocrite by a non-believer. What we are not talking about is a fallible person who messes up from time to time, and then repents and turns back to God. As we sang in the song this morning, uh, we are all prone to wander. But a true hypocrite is one who pretends to be something they are not. Someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but they actively pursue their own desire. As our champion cultures, they follow their heart. A hypocrite is one who has the chance to repent, yet they double down on their wrong decisions, on their sin. Someone who plays church while covering his or her alternate motives. Someone who does not care about their false beliefs or how they impact others. Someone who seemingly doesn't even act like they've done anything wrong to begin with. Well, there are several Old Testament books, especially in the prophets, where they tell uh, us that God doesn't accept the sacrifice of the nation of Israel. He tells them it's because their hearts are far from them. They were going through their religious 
motions, right? Like they were bringing their sacrifices to the temples. They were observing the days, but their hearts were far from them. And God said that he didn't accept their sacrifices because of this. We see it in the New Testament as well. What does Jesus say? There will be many people who come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Well, today we start a small, short, two-part series in the book of Jonah called The Marks of Religious Hypocrisy. The story of Jonah, uh, he's a prophet. He's commanded to go to his enemies, to the Assyrians. However, he rebels out of his hatred for the Assyrians. They are Israel's enemies, so he does not do what he's supposed to. Uh, The book is four chapters long. It's a very tidy structure. So in chapters 1 and 3, we have Jonah's uh, interaction with pagans the Syrians and some fishermen. And in chapters 3 and 4, or excuse me, 2 and 4, show us Jonah's interaction with God, how he prays to him and how he conversates back and forth with him in chapter 4. Irony and satire permeate this God-breathed story. When Jonah is supposed to go east, he goes west. When he should obey, he disobeys. But in contrast, the pagans, they turn around and worship God. Even in chapter 4, we see down to the cows. Like, there's nothing in Israel's history that says the cows have to wear sackcloth. But we see in the hyperbole of the story that even the cows of Assyria repent when Jonah does not. Well, Jonah, as I said, was a prophet. So we should take a minute and just talk about what a prophet is, about prophetic literature, before we jump in. So we better understand. The Hebrew word for prophet is navi, or navi, depending argument back and forth in Isaiah, but a Navi is a chosen man whom God gives a direct message. He gives him a direct message, and then he transmits that direct message to God's chosen audience. That is an Old Testament prophet. So the question that arises from time to time is, do we still have prophets today who receive a direct word, or what we call revelation, from God? Well, the general consensus among conservative evangelicals is that the canon of Scripture, or the Bible, is closed. And God is no longer giving his people direct revelation. If he did, then it would be worthy of going in the Bible, right? So, like, if I came in one day and said, God told me directly this, and this, this, and this, well, then we can have an epistle of Alan, right? Like, we can open up our Bible and we can put that in there, because it's direct revelation from the holy creator of the universe, Stephen Um, who is a pastor theologian, writes, In thinking about the canon of Scripture, we must take into account what Scripture says about itself, what church history has said about the Scriptures, and also the sufficiency of the Scriptures themselves for communing with and learning about God. And each of these testifies that the canon of Scripture is now closed. Or as the 17th century Puritan John Owen says, Candidly, if private revelation agrees with Scripture then they are unnecessary. If they disagree with Scripture, then they are false. When the Old Testament, or when a man in the Old Testament claims, as the Old Testament prophets did, that they have received a word from the God, from God, we should remind people around us what the Old Testament standards of prophecy was in Deuteronomy 18. And now I, I say this a bit tongue-in-cheek, I'm not suggesting we do this, but it is important to know. Um, Deuteronomy 18 says... But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, this is God speaking, that I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of other gods, well, that prophet should die, and the death would be by stoning. 
And if you say in your heart, how do we know if the word that the Lord has not, if it's the Lord has spoken it or not? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, the word that does not come to pass or come true, that is the word of the Lord that has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. So in the Old Testament, false prophets were stoned. And while we no longer do that in the New Testament, we should remember what Jesus had to say about those who are claiming to have revelation of the Lord. And he says, Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inside they are ravenous wolves. You know, as we wrap this up and move forward, I like to think of the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. It's also one of my favorite songs. It says, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. What more can he say than he's already said to us in his word? Old Testament prophets, though, they were men that got direct revelation from God. That is how it worked in that part of redemption history. And we have prophetic books. So let's think a minute about that. What we call the latter prophets or the writing prophets. And there are two classes. There are a major and there are a minor. Now, it's not that the major are like, you know, important and the minor are just kind of, you don't have to pay a lot of attention. It has to do with length. So your four major prophets are going to be Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, those longer prophetic books. And then there are 12 shorter ones. The prophets, there were also prophets in the historical books. We think of like Elijah and Elisha, but those are called the former prophets. We don't have books by their names. We just see them in the historical narrative. And John the Baptist is considered to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. So he's the last guy that spoke in that way. But Jonah, he was a prophet. And so think a minute about the context of Jonah. So the genre of the book is prophetic narrative with satire. Now, why is that important? That's important so you understand the book of the Bible, how you're reading it in its original context, right? Like we don't read a proverb the same way we're going to read Romans. So it's prophetic uh, narrative, meaning we're hearing a story as where you read like Isaiah and there is some narrative in it. There's a lot of what Isaiah is saying. There's very little about what Jonah says um, in the book of Jonah. We have his prayer. We have his conversation with fishermen and with God. And then we have his five sentence sermon. It's only five words or excuse me, five word sermon. It's only five words in Hebrew. It's a little more in English. Um, it's a very short sermon. Uh, we do not deny the historicity or the historical accuracy of the text. Um, we're just simply saying that God used Jonah's story to teach us something, as he does with all the stories in the Old Testament. Jonah is a self-contained story. We only see Jonah one other place in the Old Testament, and it's in Second uh, Kings, and he tells Jeroboam, if you remember, he's an evil king, and he gives Jeroboam this prophecy, um, which Amos later comes back and... Uh, like does away with. He overturns uh, Jonah's prophecy. So if you've read through 2 Kings, already we're kind of suspicious of Jonah, right? Um, and, and the prophetic in the book is prophetic narrative critical of Jonah. It's a satire. It's not the message that maybe you grew up with. And like many of you know, I didn't grow up in a church like where a mom and dad took me every day, but I had grandparents um, that went to church and I would go with them on occasion. And maybe you're thinking like the old flanagram Right, and like so they post the the picture up of like a whale, and then a picture of Jonah, and kind of the story. I don't know what you were told was like. This is what I walked away from it with, you know, with the the dear old saint that's trying to contextualize for kids. It's 
if you do what don't do what God tells you to do, God's going to send a whale to hammer you with. So it's better just to do what God says. Well, that kind of misses a little bit of the point, right? And so we're going to learn that today. The main message of Jonah is don't be like Jonah. Don't be like Jonah. He's hypocritical and he's inconsistent the entire book. Nowhere do we find an admirable trait in Jonah. Sometimes people use the book about evangelism, talking about going to your enemies. And while undoubtedly that's, that's true, um, that's not the main push um, of the book in its original context. There are two major themes I want you to pay attention to as we go through this book. God's sovereignty and God's grace. Both of these themes permeate the book. You will notice that the pagan fishermen and the evil Assyrians will turn and worship God. Yet the Hebrew prophet, he will consistently disobey God. The all-powerful God is in control and merciful to whom he is merciful to throughout the entire book. You cannot oppose God's will in the book of Jonah. The commentator Douglas Stewart writes, In ancient Judaism, this book served as a bulwark against the framework that allowed Jews to think that they alone were worthy of God's blessing, while other peoples were not. In other words, do not believe that because God has given you grace, that you somehow deserve it, or that you are the only recipient of it. If you are a child of a king, you should be grateful, not proud. As we will see with Jonah, nowhere in the book is he found to be explicitly grateful for the blessings he has received from God. Despite the fact that Jonah obeys, God's plans come to pass, and the fishermen will even try to save Jonah at one point, as we'll see today. And without any other explanation or background, let's get into the book of Jonah. So, in this passage, Jonah reveals three marks of religious hypocrisy. Jonah displays his religious hypocrisy by open disobedience. Jonah displays his religious hypocrisy by claiming to know truth that he does not back up with action. And Jonah displays his religious hypocrisy by his false apology. Again, three marks of religious hypocrisy, open open disobedience, claiming to know truth that he does not back up with action, and by his false apology. So, Jonah displays his religious hypocrisy by open disobedience. Would you turn with me to Jonah? Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 3. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So like I said, here we see Jonah. He's supposed to go east. But which way does he go? He goes west. Nineveh would be in northern, I think it's still there, I haven't... Look at a whole lot, but I'm pretty sure Nineveh is still a city in northern Iraq, but that's the direction he wants to go. And many scholars, or he should be going, and many scholars believe Tarshish was in Spain. It's kind of a weird word. It kind of is like Portland, like it kind of means like a port city. And so there may have been another Tarshish, but the point is he went the other direction, probably towards Spain. Jonah did not want to follow God's lead. He had his own idea about how things should go. 
Instead, he went the total opposite direction of the way God wanted him to go. Jonah wanted no part in following God's plan to show mercy to his enemies. Think about if God called you to be a missionary to Baghdad or Iran. I don't know if you've ever read the book by David Platt, Radical, but he tells a story of back when the wars um, were really big over there, and he's going to some church talking about sending missionaries to Baghdad, and someone says, well, some old deacon at one point goes, well, I appreciate the fact you want to share the gospel with them, but I think we need to just make it you know, a parking lot over there or something like that. And he says, that's not the heart of a Christian. Like a Christian's heart should not be, a Christian's heart should be that people come to know Christ. We have no evidence that Jonah was afraid of going to Assyria. Like, we might be afraid of going to, like, where ISIS is real big, like, you know, Syria right now. Uh, But that he hated his enemies, and he did not want to go and preach repentance to them. We also have no other evidence of any other Bible prophet disobeying God's command. Uh, The prophet Amos stated in his book, The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? In other words, the Lord has given me this word. I must give it. I must obey his command. But Jonah disobeyed God's word because it did not conform to his wishes. Let that sink in for a minute. Jonah disobeyed God's word because it did not conform to his wishes. What do you fear? Or for that matter, what do you love? So much that it would cause you to disobey the creator of everything. When you have that thing in mind, you have just discovered your God. You have just discovered what you truly worship. As someone has once said, tell me what occupies your mind, and I will tell you who your God is. So what captivates you? What do you fear? Do you fear God? Second, Jonah displays his religious hypocrisy by claiming to know truth that he does not back up with action. Look with me back at the text, starting in verse 4. But the low, oh, one thing before we get started here, pay attention to capitalization, right? Because there's going to be a lot of God talk here. Um, Big G is the God. Little G is, you know, a God, like your God, a false God. Also, anytime that Lord is all capitals, that is where the Hebrew word for Yahweh. So the like sacred name of God. That's important as we go through here. Verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep, so that the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and we may not perish. And as they came to one another, they, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know who's, on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where are you from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Then he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. 
Then they were exceed, the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then he said to them, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And the sea, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not his innocent blood, lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Notice the contrast in the characters here, right? The sailors, they're afraid. They're like throwing their livelihood overboard. But Jonah is asleep. The ship is in peril on the sea. There are high winds, high waves. Um, I know it's just because I'm a wimp. Um, but when I went fishing with Guy and, jo- Guy and John not long ago, it was, I don't know what size seas. They said there were little waves, but there's breakers coming over the bow. And I was kind of like, whoa, what's going on? Well, this is like way worse than that. There's like water beating against the side of the ship. And the pagan sailors, as they're going down to grab their livelihood, their, their money and stuff, and they're throwing it overboard um, to try and lighten the ship, they're passing this guy. He's asleep. Now, he may have been in a hold. We don't know how big the ship is, but whatever. They know he's asleep. So they go to the captain, and the captain goes, what do you mean, you sleeper? Like, are you nuts? Like, do you even know what's going on? Get up. The ship's rolling. There's waves pounding against it. And he says, get up. Call to your God. Maybe the God will give a thought to us and we'll be saved. And the sailors are up on deck. I'm assuming they already got all the cargo over because they have time to cast lots. And they start casting lots, likely throwing dice. Think like magic eight ball. Like, you know, and they shake it and say, is it that guy? No, it's not you. Like, is that guy? And through the process of elimination, they finally find out that it's Jonah. Um, I told people, like, th- or I was thinking about this week, think of Star Wars Episode One if you've ever seen it, in the, on Tatooine, and the guy's throwing the chance cube. Like, that's kind of what's going on here. Um, and the lot falls to Jonah. And they give him five quick questions. Look back at verse 8. He says, On whose account is this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And what does Jonah do? Well, he gives them some religious gobbledygook. He says, well, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. I fear the God of heaven. Well, no, you don't. You're not listening to him. (laughs) Who made the sea? Who made dry land? Think about this. Like, he's standing there saying that to me, this is the boldest claim in the entire book. He says, I serve the God who made the sea while you're actively trying to run from that God on the sea. Do you really believe it, Jonah? He claims to serve God while he is actively disobeying. Then he gives us the act, ultimate act of selfishness. and He tells the sailors to kill him. So sometimes if you read this, you might think, well, it's like a I feel sorry for myself or, um, you know, maybe this is like an act of like nobleness. Like I will save your lives by giving my own. But think about 
God doesn't say in the book, this is how this is going to be averted. And he never says, well, you know, maybe we should go back. He doesn't hit his knees and repent and say, God, I'll do whatever you do. You guys got to take me back to shore. He just says, just kill me. I'd rather die than go preach repentance to the Assyrians. For sure, he will not have to go to Nineveh if he is dead. However, the sailors seem to care more about Jonah's life than he did. Think about it. They actually feared God's and his judgment more than the one who is claiming to serve God. Look at this. They rowed hard for shore. So they, they pull out the oars and they're like, there's a land over there. Let's get this guy to safety or whatever. So this guy is the reason that they've just thrown their whole livelihood overboard. Like we, we miss that a lot. Like this is, these guys are, are entrepreneurs or whatever. This is their money. They've thrown it overboard because of this guy disobeying God and they're trying to save him. But Jonah doesn't want to go to Assyria because that's his enemies. So who's the forgiving one in this situation? Look at verse 13. What happens? They start rowing hard for shore, and a sovereign God makes the storm get worse. Like, you're not, you're not going to thwart God's hand. Like, he's going to do what he wants to do. And so they do not get to shore. Things get worse. They get more rapid. Um, the sailors say, oh, Lord, you have done as you pleased. They know they're not going to get there. So finally, they pray, God, have mercy on us. Like, we don't want to kill this guy, but they chunk him in the sea. And what happens? The sea calms down. And then what happens? We have these pagan sailors glorifying the one true and the living God. And they sacrifice to him. They make vows. We read in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So third, we see Jonah displays his religious hypocrisy by his false apology. Look with me at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Well, what kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Was it just a big grouper? How long can you live in a fish stomach? All of these are misguided trajectories for our stories. Like this is like a Mythbusters thing. You know, they want to figure that out. But what we need to know is that the God who created everything provided a miraculous means to get Jonah where he wanted him to be. So in other words a manner outside the bounds of normal, natural, scientific operations. Defying normal laws. That's what a miracle is. Like when Jesus raises someone from the dead, or he restores blinded eyes to see. Like, we don't know exactly how this happened, but if we believe the Bible, and we believe God would not lie to us, then we just trust that's what happened. So look with me, uh, chapter 2, we'll read verses 1 through 9. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and the billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, like wrapped about my head at the roots of mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have owed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah realizes after he's swallowed by this giant fish that he's not going to die. And so he prays. But is it a true prayer of repentance? On the surface, it might look like it. I mean, it definitely has repentance-type language in it, right? But is it a change of heart? Is it a desire to go forth from this point on and serve God? Or is Jonah kind of like the kid that's sorry he got caught? The guy that knows how to get out of trouble. While I believe he's truly sorry for his situation, because I don't know anybody that wants to be in the belly of a fish, right? He does say that he'll go forward and do what God wants him to do, and he sort of kind of does. We'll learn more about that next week. But he never actually repents. There's never really a change of heart decoration, de- direction. Remember we talked about the word for repent, the Greek word metanoia, literally means like I'm going this way, and then I change directions. And we know he doesn't change directions because we have chapters 3 and 4. If we just ended there, we might think, well, this guy learned his lesson. But as we'll see next week, it's not necessarily the case. Look at verse 9. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. That's his big claim. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, not to him. So Jonah doesn't decide who's saved. And yet, in verses chapters 3 and 4, we see that he doesn't really back that proclamation up with action. And it's kind of comical how God sends Jonah on his way. Look with me at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Notice we don't see that Jonah just all of a sudden finds himself in open water and he can just kind of swim to shore or whatever. Or maybe like in Acts, when we have Philip, right? And he's carried away by the Spirit, so he's just baptized the Ethiopian eunuch and then he's carried away by, to, by the Spirit to this new place, which would be a, another miracle, right? Just like being swallowed by fish. But we see that Jonah is vomited. Now, that part of the scene is kind of lost on us today, 21st century, right? Like we're a country of Nickelodeon and Ghostbusters, and Fear Factor. So like slime and fluids and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it might be kind of icky, but it's not really that weird for us. But when you read like the Pentateuch, we see the boils and pus and natural body functions. Like there are like really weird specific laws. Like, and so to be an ancient Israelite and to be vomited out is not really a good thing. Like, it's not really like a sign of God's blessing that you have been vomited, right? And so here we have Jonah, and he's sitting on a beach in Palestine, and he's covered in, like, stomach fluids and, I don't know, like, halibut bones and salmon guts or whatever's in the belly of a fish. And he's sitting there, and it's more irony and satire to show what Jonah thinks he is and how he actually is. But still, we see that Jonah deserved death. He did not deserve deliverance, and yet he received mercy. God is totally sovereign. Stuart, the commentator, writes, Neither Jonah nor the fish had any control over these events. They were to do the will of God. And God sovereignly shows a measure of mercy to this rebel. And God sovereignly puts Jonah back on track to fulfill his plans. To go up to Nineveh, a city who likewise deserved death, not deliverance, but as we will learn more about next week, God had mercy on. So how does this fit with us as New Covenant believers? 
right? Like I've talked about prophetic books at the beginning, and we're not under that covenant anymore. We're under the new covenant. So how does this fit with us? Well, Matthew 23, there are lots of places, but we're going to stick with Matthew 23. Jesus says to a crowd and his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move with their finger. Move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. There's a square thing they would wear on their head. And their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts. And the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplace. And to be called rabbi by other people. So just in this little portion here of Matthew 23. We see that hypocrites want to be seen as righteous. They want people to think they're righteous. They want people to say, oh, that guy right there, we know he's, he's righteous. They are doing holy deeds to be seen. But Jesus goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, we will often label anyone who um, we don't like in the church a Pharisee. Right? Like, that's kind of like the, the, the cool thing to do sometimes. Like, someone says the gluttony's a sin. They're like, well, you're just a Pharisee. You're just a legalist. But we have to remember something about the Pharisees in the New Testament and what Jesus said. Um, oftentimes, we like to say a definition of a legalist is if you don't do something I don't do, or if you take holiness more seriously than I do, then you're a legalist. But what did Jesus say? Jesus never once rebuked the Pharisees for taking holiness or the law too seriously. I would challenge you, if you like homework, go home and try and find a place in the Bible where Jesus said, hey, you guys take the law too seriously. Or you guys are too worried about holiness or being right before God. What does he rebuke them for? He rebukes them for adding to the law, right? Like the guys that had the hand-washing thing, and Jesus said, like, yeah, that's your tradition. Like, that's not something that's in the Bible. Or not practicing what they preach. Those who cup, whose cup was clean on the outside, but on the inside it was full of like crusty chili and mold. You know what I'm talking about? You leave chili out too long and it gets weird looking. Like that's how the inside of their cup looked, but it was pretty on the outside. They were like a shining tombstone or a golden sarcophagus. Yet the inside held a rotting body. Friends, the fact is, is that Everyone here either was or still is Jonah. Do you follow God's instruction? Do you attempt to follow God's instruction? So what do you mean, you sleeper? You who are here and hear this word, hear of the wrath of God, it's like a hurricane on an ocean, yet do nothing. What are you running from? Are you running from God? Or are you rowing hard against his will? 
Are you a rebel against the king? Now, friends, you don't have to be a criminal or some sort of, you know, person on skid row or death row to be a rebel against God's will. Like, you can be living seemingly the American dream and be a basically moral person and still disobey God. We see that in Jonah. I'm a Hebrew. What do you mean, you sleeper? You who claim the name of Christ, yet blatantly disregard his word. Friends, you are a privileged generation. We don't have to sit cross-legged on the floor and say, oh, I wish God would just speak to me. Like, you, you have it. it. It's right here. A lot of people haven't had this. Like, I've ta- I'm not here to, like, shame, but you, we've talked about this before. Like, people have died that we can read the Bible in English. William Tyndale. All you have to do is read it, loved ones. It's right here. In fact, it's evident when you've been disregarding his word. What is that evidence? When you make decisions and arguments with the world's wisdom. The Bible has a word for it. The Bible is sufficient, and so it talks about that, and it calls it the spirit of the age. Right? Like, worldviews flip throughout history. If you just do what's inside you, well, what's inside you is going to look a lot like this community around you. Um, It's kind of a a side note, but I heard, uh, I think it was Tim Keller talk one time, about if you're a medieval man, and we're in a pub having a glass of mead, and you and I get in a fight, and I pull out my sword, and I kill you, I'm like, well, that's just who I am, right? And everyone's going to think that's normal, right? Because it's normal for the time. But if I was in a same-sex marriage, well, that would be very unnormal then. Well, now it's different, right? Like, if I'm, in, if I'm in a bar downtown and I pull out a sword and kill somebody because we get in a fight, well, now I'm going to be in prison and have, like, mega anger management classes, right? But if I'm in that other relationship we mentioned, well, that's normal. So we cannot let the world drive our worldview, but we have an unchangeable standard right here. How long, though? How long will you disregard the word of the Lord, friends? How long will you be like Jonah and follow your desires over God's? Friends, this one has had me, I don't know if torn up is the right word, but a couple of sleepless nights all week, if I could just be transparent. I asked my wife that. I mean, a new pastor, COVID, I want very much for people to like me, right? Like, I I want you guys to like me in a human side. And I, I asked my wife, I said, how many times do I maybe didn't say something I should have? Because God's standard is more important than me being liked. Of course, she told me I was an idiot, and I'm pretty firm on everything. But I I promise you, I've been up a couple of nights about this. But also, completely transparent with you again. I've wrestled with this all week, brokenheartedly, because I can't tell you how many conversations I've had since I've been here over politics. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had since I've been here over why we sing this song or that song. Or this prosperity gospel movement or that prosperity gospel movement? Or should we have this number of masks or that number of masks? But very few people want to talk to me about God's word. And friends, if I'm just completely transparent, that breaks my heart. Friends, I pray we wake up. One of the most wearisome tasks I've had as as a pastor is defending God's word to God's own people. As I've told you before, I did not come here hat in hand begging you to flip your nickel into Christ's tin cup, but to proclaim his word. By God's grace, I hope to. By God's grace, I pray that you cling to God's word. What do you mean, you sleeper? You who boast of Christ's forgiveness, yet have not repentance. 
in your heart. As I said, many people, it doesn't say a few people. It doesn't say, well, there's going to be a couple people that are confused. Jesus says, many will say to me on that final day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? I was in charge of Awanas. I was a deacon. I led small group. I did all these things. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Friend, you claim to be Christ's, but do you turn from your thoughts to his will? Or are you like Jonah and go with your plan? If you think God will just shrug it off, no big deal, bro, at your sin, another homework assignment, take some time, read Revelation this afternoon. Read the scene where 16,000 stadia, Right? Like, so stadia is like the length of their like, football field of the day. 16,000 long, up to a horse's bridle, will be a, a lake of blood of people who have rebelled against God. Read about what Jesus said about rebels and hell. Do not be fl- flippant about his commands. Wake up. When you say, well, you're just fear, that you're just trying to be a fear guy. No, like, I'm telling you what the Bible says. I say it second after, Bi- after God said it first. And if fear is what it takes to get you to stop playing patty cakes with a holy God, then let's talk about fear. Jesus said there is a place where the worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched. But he also died on a cross so that all those who trust him would not go there. Friends, God eternal, like Jesus was there the day that the world was spoken to existence. Right? He has always existed. He came to earth, wrapped himself in the flesh, fully God, fully man. He is the God-man. Right? He lived a life we couldn't because we can't. He was God. But he also was a good substitute for us, or the perfect substitute for us, because he was man. And he died on a cross, on the slave's wood, the most horrific death, and drank the entire cup of righteous wrath that you and I deserve. I don't care how good a life you've lived. Perfect 1950s American dream, never cheated on your wife. You are still a rebel against a holy God. You were born that way. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. And friends, if you turn from your sin and turn to Christ, repent, a true repentance, not like Jonah, not like, I'm sorry I'm in my situation, God, or just can you just let me out of it so I can go do what I want, but a true repentance submitting to his lordship, then you don't have to worry about that. You'll be heartbroken like I am that people are going there, but you won't have to worry about it. Friends, would you pray with me?